Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Michael Lemonick, a freelance science journalist from Princeton University, will be looking at the discoveries of William and Caroline Herschel. I thought a little background music would be good to start with. Um, and you now know why this is up here instead of a picture of William Herschel or anything related to him. And that is to explain to you that um, the thing I love writing about most, I've, uh, writing for time, uh, it requires me to write about any, uh, any news in science that comes along in any field from uh, genetics to geology to archaeology. But the thing I most enjoy writing about is astronomy. And among those cover stories you heard mentioned were this one, my first. Uh, this one was in there somewhere. Um, there's another one. And it's just, uh, it just shows you that, that my love of astronomy is very deep. Uh, and a couple of years ago, a publisher came to me and said, we've got a book that uh, we want you to write. We'd like you to write. It's, we have a series called Great Discoveries, and it's about people who made great discoveries in science, and we'd like you to write about William Herschel. And my reaction was, and I know I'm in Bath, so uh, I have to be careful here. Uh, my reaction was, William Herschel, he discovered a planet, I know, and that doesn't sound like it make a very good biography. I mean, he discovered the planet, and then it was discovered, and that's page five, and then what's the rest of the book about? And the publisher was very, uh, knew better than I did, and he said, uh, why don't you go away and do a little bit of research and maybe you'll find that he was more interesting than you thought. And because you're looking at a book cover up there and you see a pile of books down there, clearly I did discover that William Herschel was much more interesting than I had thought. Um, so interesting, in fact, that I was able to put a subtitle on the book uh, that first of all included his sister Carolyn. I didn't know before I started how important she was to his work. And secondly, a, a subtitle that, that uh, says that they revolutionized our understanding of the universe. And I think that's literally the case. William Herschel is not um, talked about much in astronomy textbooks and astronomy classes. Um, and you would get the idea that he was just kind of a minor figure um, in the history of astronomy. But it turns out... And again, I, I may end up saying this a lot during this talk. I'm using the phrase, as you probably know, because here, of all places, people are likely to know more of this story uh, than they are elsewhere. Nevertheless, um, I discovered that he was really one of the most important astronomers in history, and that right here in Bath, he essentially invented the modern science of astronomy. When... When Herschel started looking at the heavens, the basic idea behind astronomy was that it was for two purposes. One was to note the locations of the stars and to note the movements of the planets and the sun and the moon so that sailors could navigate, navigate better at sea. So if you knew exactly where the star Arcturus was supposed to be on this particular date at this particular time of day, you knew where you were and you didn't get lost in the ocean. And so that's what most 
many astronomers did. That's why the Royal Greenwich Observatory was founded to, to track the positions of, of heavenly objects. And the other reason was to test the theories of Sir Isaac Newton, whose uh, theory of gravity and whose uh, invention of calculus allowed people to track and predict where heavenly bodies should be moving. So uh, there was great excitement at the time in the, in the 1700s when Herschel was around in discovering and tracking the motions of comets because uh, unlike planets, which pretty much everybody knew, uh, knew about and knew uh, the motions of by that time, comets would fly in from, uh, from nowhere and they would streak across the sky over a period of, of weeks or months and uh, you could calculate their orbits and you could make predictions and you could uh, decide whether these things were going to come back again and that's how Edmund Halley became, uh, became famous and had a comet named after him. He predicted that this he calculated that a comet that had appeared several times was actually the same object and that it kept coming back and that it would come back again and sure enough uh, it did. So this was the, the major theme of astronomy at the time. It is not the major theme of astronomy today and Herschel was the one who, who changed it uh, pretty much single-handed. So let me tell you a little bit about Herschel and where he came from because he came he did come from nowhere, uh, sort of like a comet. He, um, he, was not, uh, he did not grow up in England. He did not go to any university, ever. He did not um, study science in any formal way. He was pretty much self-taught in, uh, in astronomy. And the first thing that struck me when I started looking into, uh, into his life was that he was not even in the sciences for the first half or so of his life. Um, some of you already know this. I told you I'd be saying this a lot. Uh, but what you're listening to is one of Herschel's symphonies because he had um, a first career as a musician and a composer and a, a soloist. And even that career was a bit surprising because he began life as um, a military musician, playing in a military band in Hanover, which, uh, which at that time was under the rule of the British Crown, um, he was in a, um, basically in a militia band run by his father, uh, populated by several of his brothers, and uh, they, uh, they really spent their time marching to war, because they were at war with the French at the time, and dodging bullets and sloshing through muddy fields and so on. And it was a, it was a, a respectable life, but it was not by any means um, a life in, in high society, and there weren't very great prospects for somebody who, who had that kind, of, um, that kind of background and that kind of work. As it happened, though, Herschel's father, Isaac, the leader of the band, was more than just a musician. First of all, he, he had not been a musician. He was not trained as a musician. He, like his son, was self-taught in his chosen profession. Uh, he learned to play a number of instruments, a number of difficult instruments, so well that he was able to get this position um, and, and uh, rise up from his background as a, uh, the son of a gardener. And Isaac taught his sons not only to play music, but to be interested in intellectual pursuits of all kinds. He taught them mathematics. He took them outside to look at the stars. They discussed philosophy and, and, uh, and the theories of, of, uh, of great philosophers of the day. One 
In her diaries, uh, William's younger sister Carolyn wrote that um, sometimes the, the men would come home late from a concert and they would stay up half the night arguing about, about theories of, of uh, science. And um, even when they went to bed, they, William and his brothers would keep talking uh, about these things. They weren't talking about music, they were talking about other things. So clearly he was interested in things beyond just what he knew. And he had an intellectual curiosity that allowed him to become this revolutionary figure. Uh, here's a, if I can make it advance, here's a portrait of William. Um, I saw, uh, I, don't, I guess, I don't know if it was the original or not. Was it the original? It, in the, you know, a much bigger and, and nicer version of this in the museum uh, down on New King Street today. Uh, this is Herschel when he was maybe in his 40s. This is when he, uh, this is when, around the time when he was becoming well-known in astronomy. Here's a portrait of him much later in life. And uh, so he was ambitious. He was also under fire by the French. And when the French actually won a major battle in the Thirty Years' War, he and his older brother left for England, uh, partly because it was not a healthy place for them to be, but also partly because the, the prospects of, of advancing in their, uh, in their musical careers was greater here. This was a vigorous and lively musical life going on in England at the time. Uh, they came to London, where William wanted to become a composer. And as you hear... From the background music, he was, he was okay. I mean, I, I think it sounds pretty good. Uh, evidently, though, it wasn't good enough. Uh, there were so many composers in London at the time, and there were so many great composers, that he could not get any work. He couldn't get any work uh, having his uh, symphonies published or performed. And eventually he gave up and went up to the north of England, where he took up uh, a job as the leader of a military band. Uh, he was very well equipped to do that. Uh, it wasn't a very hard job, and so he also spent time traveling between uh, the, the uh, country homes of the aristocracy and teaching their children instruments. And on these long rides, um, many of them at night, he had his attention drawn back up to the stars that he used to see when he was a child. And he began to think more about them and think more about the great discoveries that were being made at the time, um, he knew about telescopes. He didn't have one. He'd never looked through one. Uh, but he started to observe what he would see and make notes in his, in his notebooks. There are entries that say, you know, I was riding from here to there, and Venus was very bright in the southern sky, or things like that. Uh, he bought a book um, that would explain to him a little bit more about the mathematics that lay behind astronomy at the time, a book called Harmonics. And uh, it was a book about about uh, literally about harmonics, and because music is based on mathematics, uh, the, when we, the word harmony actually refers to a mathematical relationship between notes that makes them uh, harmonious to our ears. Um, he began to explore the, 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 um, uh, the science behind music, but also behind the motion of the planets and the, and the stars. And he became intrigued with this stuff. Uh, he was still intending to be a successful musician. I think by now he'd given up on, on uh, being a great composer, but, uh, but he was uh, such a good performer and a, uh, uh, a, um, a director, music director, 
that his ambitions began to go in that direction. He was uh, he found out about a competition to become the organist at a new I don't know if it was a new church or just a new organ in the in the uh, town of Halifax, and uh, there was actually a a, um, a playoff between people who wanted this job. It was something like uh, American Idol, I guess, but probably a little bit more dignified. Um, and the story goes that Herschel went there and he was waiting his turn, and somebody went up before him to, to take his turn, and the man before him played with such speed and precision and, and uh, uh, virtuosity that it was clear who was going to be the winner. And Herschel, you know, he, was, he went up as a, kind of an afterthought, and uh, the story goes that as he was going up, someone said to him, basically, and I paraphrase, uh, you know, this is, there's no way you're going to beat this guy. How could you possibly live up to it? But Herschel had a creative mind, and so when he sat down at the organ, he, um, he basically cheated. Uh, the organs of that time, or in, at least in England at that time, had no foot pedals. And organists now use foot pedals, uh, play them with their feet, to add bass notes and add richness to the, to the music. Uh, so you're doing more than playing with just your hands. Um, there were no foot pedals, but Herschel was a clever fellow. So as he sat down at the organ, he took several lead weights out of his pockets and placed them on some of the bass keys so that as he was playing the melody, there was this beautiful, rich bass drone going on underneath. Nobody had heard that kind of sound coming out of an organ before, and he got the job. Um, About a month later, he quit. And the reason he quit was that a new position had opened up as the organist and music director at a new chapel here in Bath. And Compared with um, Halifax, Bath was was uh, kind of a mecca for a musician. This is where all the all the um, aristocrats came in the summer uh, out of London to uh, go to dances, attend concerts, take the waters, and um, it was the most fashionable place in the country um, to go. And so Herschel jumped at the chance to come down here. He took over the choir directorship. He became immersed in the musical life of Bath and became a, a great local um, uh, celebrity. He also, because his restless mind would not be satisfied with simply being a very successful musician, um, he also kept thinking more and more about and wondering more and more about the skies above, reading more about astronomy, um, uh, becoming intrigued with the practice of astronomy, not just the theory. And so uh, he was no no longer content to go outside and look up at the skies. Uh, He had to look through a telescope. He had to to see what the great natural philosophers of the day were seeing through these extraordinary devices. And uh, at first he, he, uh, he rented a telescope and was very dissatisfied with his performance, and uh, he possibly could have bought a better telescope, but he didn't have an infinite amount of money, so he decided to start making his own, and he began experimenting with telescopes. By this time, his brother Alexander had joined him in Bath. Um, Alexander was also a musician, played the cello, uh, 
and he, be, he joined this sort of musical uh, uh, whirlwind that Herschel was a part of, but Alexander was also a great uh, craftsman. He was a clockmaker, um, and he could build exquisite instruments, and together they set out to start building telescopes. And, um, and started looking at the stars. Um, the other thing that he did at around this time was to bring his sister over from Hanover. Uh, his father had died. His mother and older brother were using Carolyn um, essentially as a servant in the house, doing, doing uh, cleaning and, and uh, cooking and really having uh, no life of her own. She might have gone off and gotten married, as her elder sister did, but as her father Isaac had told her before she died, before he died, um, he said to her, uh, and she records this in her in her diary, um, "Since you are neither handsome nor rich, your prospects for getting married are essentially zero." And again, I'm paraphrasing. Um, unless at some advanced age, an old man. Uh, takes pity on you and marries you for your good qualities of character because it's not going to be for attraction, trust me. Um, which was un- unfortunate, but, um, but evidently was true. So um, uh, here, I'll show you a picture of Carolyn. Now, I, 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 she, this is not how she looked as a young woman. I don't, I don't want you to think she was that unattractive um, at the age of 18. Um, this is, uh, as I understand it, the only known... A portrait of her, and it was done uh, when she was much closer to the age of 98 when she died. Nevertheless, she was not, she was not um, a great catch. And William didn't like the way uh, she was being treated, and he decided he would bring her over to Bath and train her to be a professional singer. And uh, evidently, it worked, because... Here we have a program. This is also at the museum. Um, here's a program, uh, Mr. Herschel's Benefit Concert of the Messiah, uh, with the principal vocal parts by Miss Herschel and Mr. Herschel, um, among others. So, so he did train her to be a singer, and she was a good enough singer that uh, it was not just nepotism that got her these parts. She was offered a position in Birmingham, as a professional singer for which she would be paid. And um, so clearly sh- she really was that good. She, um, she turned it down. She was too loyal to her brother. She didn't want to leave his side. And uh, so he was very successful at that. But that was not all he did for her. He also t- started teaching her mathematics. He taught her to speak English. Um, and he began involving her in this, this crazy enterprise to, to start building telescopes and looking at the stars. Um, because of this strange obsession, William Herschel became known around here as something of an eccentric. There's a story uh, told by uh, one of his students uh, that they were in the middle of a lesson and the sky cleared and, and Venus or something appeared in the sky and Herschel dropped his violin and ran to the window and said, oh, you come, we must go look. You know, it's, it's come out of the clouds. And um, so people thought he was just a little bit nuts. Um, but he was, and he was, I guess, he, was, he, was, uh, he had a mania for learning about, about the skies and about the, uh, about the stars and understanding what he saw. Um, I have to make sure I don't time this badly because uh, there's, I mean, there's so much to this story that I, I'm not able to tell you. 
Um, uh, one night he was uh, out. Uh, let's see. Let's go down here. This is um, this is one of the telescopes he ended up making. In um, uh, it's now on display at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. There's another one up at Cambridge, and I don't know if there are any others. We have people who actually know up here. Um, are there any others known? Lots of them. Lots of them. Okay, um, but this is this is one of his seven foot telescopes. Uh, the gentleman who just answered that question actually built the replica that is in the museum today. You can go and look at it, and it is absolutely exquisite. It looks, it looks uh, essentially just like this. Um, and m- people who don't ask and don't read the label carefully are undoubtedly convinced they've seen the, one of Herschel's actual telescopes, and it might as well be. Anyway, uh, turns out that Herschel, the, um, the perfectionist, and his brother Alexander, the craftsman, built telescopes that were, unbeknownst to them, because they didn't really have much contact with other, other astronomers, the best instruments of their time. One night he was out in front of his house on River Street. He lived in several places here in Bath, uh, out in the street uh, looking at the moon, and a gentleman happened by and asked to look through the telescope. Um, Herschel gave him a look, and the gentleman was very satisfied. He came back the next day and introduced himself. Uh, he was William Watson, a member of the Royal Society, and he was the one who started getting Herschel in contact with, uh, with other of the great astronomers of the day. He, re- he recognized that this, that this crazy musician had something going on. Um, it was not awfully long after that that Herschel was out in his back garden when he made the great discovery that I thought was all that he'd ever done. Uh, but before, well, no, I guess I'll tell you what it was. Uh, he was out looking in the garden, and he was uh, looking up at the sky, and he saw a strange object. And uh, he knew it wasn't a star, because stars, even through a telescope, even through a powerful telescope, still look just like pinpoints of light. They're so far away. Um, it was, um, it wasn't, he wasn't sure what it was, but the only thing it could reasonably be, he figured, was a comet. As I said, those were very popular at the time. People were looking for them all the time. This didn't look like a comet. Because it, um, oh, I, I'm sorry. So he knew it wasn't a star because it had a, an actual size to it. Uh, it, it, had, it showed a visible disk, and stars don't do that. Comets do show a visible size in a telescope, but almost always they are surrounded by a halo of, of gas, and often by a tail as well, but at least by a halo of gas. They have a fuzzy appearance. And this one didn't have it. <coughs> Nevertheless, that's all really that it could be. I mean, it did not occur to Herschel, I think, that it could be a planet. And the reason was that there was a fixed number of planets. Uh, the Greeks actually considered the sun and the moon planets because the word planet actually means something that changes its position in the sky with respect to the stars. But leaving those aside, there were five known planets. There was Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Those had been known since prehistory. I mean, the Neanderthals looked up and they saw them. Uh, nobody discovered them. They were just always there. Because you can see them without any kind, of, um, any kind of telescope. And so for all of recorded history and beyond, there were five planets. didn't occur to anyone that there should be another one. Um, so he went and, and actually presented a paper on this topic, uh, on this discovery, to the Literary and Philosophical Society here. Uh, and the paper was titled, Account of a Comet. And he described how he found it and, and so on. And he sent this paper on to the Royal Society, uh, where at least some members there questioned his 
sanity uh, because he claimed uh, to see this thing with magnifications in his telescope that were beyond what people thought was possible. They thought he was basically a crank. Um, but his friend Watson was on his side and, and got other people to uh, look for this object themselves. And sure enough, they found it. And they tracked its motion over the next weeks and months and measured its orbit. And uh, astronomers, I think, in Europe were the ones who finally determined that you know, this, is, this is not a comet. It has the wrong kind of orbit. It doesn't look like a comet. This is actually a new planet, first new planet ever discovered in human history. Herschel was instantly famous. Um, uh, uh, scientists across Europe and, uh, and England uh, were now talking about this new guy. The, uh, he came and, and met with members of the Royal Society. Um, and he had done something absolutely great. What's interesting is that he didn't think personally, that it was particularly great. He wasn't looking for planets. He, it was very nice that he found one, but he was on a different quest altogether, and that is what makes him uh, a revolutionary. Uh, I told you at the time people were just looking at positions of stars and, and uh, calculating the motions of comets, uh, but Herschel had a grander ambition. He wanted to understand the universe as a whole. Um, he wanted to know its extent and its structure and how it evolved. And these are very, very modern questions. We now have scientists who are called cosmologists who study that very thing. Um, he was the first one, really, to do so. And when he, was, when he found uh, Uranus, he was actually on a quest to find something entirely different. He was looking for double stars. The reason was that he wanted to measure the size of the universe. He wanted to measure the distances to the stars. This was a great question at the time. Nobody really knew how far away the stars were, but they knew they were pretty far away. And he was determined to do this by uh, a technique known as parallax. And this is where we do the, um, the group activity. Um, some of you probably know what parallax is, but for those who don't, do me the favor of holding up one finger at about arm's length. And then hold up one much closer to your face and close one eye. Okay? And so you see where the fingers are in relation to each other. Now open that eye and close the other one. And go back and forth between the eyes. And you should see that the nearby finger jumps back and forth. And that's because the angle doesn't change much with respect to the more distant figure. But the one close to your eye, you're seeing from a very sharp uh, angle in both cases, and you're seeing it from a different perspective. And that's what he was trying to do with the stars. As the Earth moves around the sun, uh, it's first here, and then six months later it's over there, and you've actually gone 186 million miles. So your two points of view are very different. And if one star is nearby, and the other is close to it in the sky, but much further, the nearby star should jump back and forth. And you can then use simple geometry to calculate the distance. Um, and that's what he was trying to do. It turns out that uh, this was a misguided search because almost all of the double stars that you see in the sky um, are not one close and one far, but they're actually orbiting each other. So there's going to be no jump, no matter what. Um, they're both at the same distance. So if you held your fingers out here, this experiment wouldn't work very well. Um, but it was in a systematic attempt, because you can't see these without a telescope. These are too close together to see with, without a telescope. He was going systematically across the sky, 
to find these double stars because you don't know where to look. And if you just look randomly, that's no good. Uh, so he was the first one to actually do a, a systematic survey of the heavens. Um, he happened to find Uranus uh, in doing this, and he would later write, well, yeah, I found it, but I was going to find it. There was no question about that. This was not, I mean, if it was there, I was going to find it because I was looking at every bit of sky. So if I hadn't found it that night, I would have found it some other night. Uh, he was very blasé about it. The rest of the world wasn't. He became famous. He, um, uh, his friends uh, in high places uh, realized this was an opportunity to allow this great uh, self-taught scientist to do nothing but astronomy and, and stop having to make his living through music. So they negotiated through uh, their contacts with the king that there would be an exchange. Uh, Herschel would do something to honor the king. Uh, the king would reward Herschel. That's how it was done. And the obvious thing for Herschel to do to honor the king was, would be to name this new object after him. So that's what he did. And so uh, the new planet was named George. Uh, that's right. And, um, uh, so the planet George um, is, would be in, in, uh, in modern uh, astronomy textbooks, except that the astronomers in Europe would not buy it. Uh, they had no interest in honoring King George. And some of them were at war with him, after all. And um, they didn't ask the Americans, who were also at war with him at the time. Uh, but, um, but anyway, uh, so they came up with a different name. They, they thought that we have a nice system already, classical gods and goddesses. Um, uh, in classical mythology, Uranus is the father of Saturn, this new planet is the next one out from Saturn, uh, so let's call it Uranus. And that finally is what it was named, even though Herschel never accepted this and called it the Georgian star um, until, uh, until he died. So they, so they came up with this, this new name, and it, it, we, uh, we now call it Uranus, which is the correct pronunciation, even though when you say it, young boys will giggle. Uh, but there's no way there's no way out of it. That's what it's called. So, sorry. Right, right. Um, so, world famous scientist. I know, and, and so in return, the king granted Herschel a um, a salary of two hundred pounds a year, which turned out to be a, a serious pay cut from what he was making as a musician. Nevertheless, it was enough to convince him to to leave music and begin astronomy full-time. He also got a commission from the king to, uh, to build telescopes and sell them, which he did. He built some, some extraordinary instruments, um, many of which were sold to uh, kings, and, uh, kings across Europe. Uh, I am told that the telescope he built for the king of Spain um, later on was probably the best one he ever made. But he kept making telescopes for himself. Um, so he could continue his surveys of the heavens. This is his, uh, one of his 20-foot telescopes. Um, and you see this contraption it's, it's nestled in, which allows it to uh, rotate and, and point at any part of the sky uh, that you want. Uh, just to show you what the result, 200 years later, of his, uh, his um, innovation in astronomy was, this is a, um, an image generated by something called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, and what these modern scientists 
did just over the past 10 years or so is used a telescope to measure the distances to and the positions of more than a million galaxies in the universe. And so every dot you see here is a galaxy, and you can see that the galaxies are arranged in a, in a curious pattern. There are, there are places where they're very few, and then there are sort of strings of galaxies uh, that link up together. The, the universe is, is something like Swiss cheese. Um, this tells astronomers a great deal about what the universe is made of and how it evolved and, and, uh, and how it's constructed. This is exactly the kind of thing William Herschel was trying to do uh, and was the first one to do. And so every astronomer who does this work now is following after Herschel. This is a, a visual image from, that was just a plot. This is a visual image from the Sloan Sky Survey, and most of the objects you see here are galaxies. Uh, Herschel would have just been in, in heaven to come back and, and see what his successors learned how to do. Um, so Herschel um, went, began sweeping the heavens with bigger and bigger telescopes. Uh, Carolyn helped him. Uh, she took notes. She, she uh, recorded all of his findings. He actually trained her to use the telescope because he would sometimes have to go away and present one of his telescopes to some king or other. Uh, king George liked him to go as an emissary. Um, so Carolyn did, did her own um, astronomical work. Um, one of the things William wanted to do was to try and figure out what the overall shape of the Milky Way was. That's a very modern idea. And he did it by essentially counting the numbers of stars in different directions. Uh, he made the erroneous assumption that most stars are about the same brightness. It's not true. Nevertheless, even with this very crude and quite incorrect method, this is his drawing of the Milky Way. And... Um, and this is us, um, which uh, doesn't really look exactly like a modern spiral galaxy. It looks more like this. Nevertheless, um, it's remarkably good, considering, uh, considering what he had to work with. So he realized it was elongated, which it, which it is, um, uh, so much thinner in this direction than in this direction. Uh, over here what looks like a, uh, a mouth, uh, is actually based, has to do with something that he couldn't have known, which is that the, um, the center of the Milky Way is hidden by enormous clouds of gas. So the center is actually over here. And so he got half the Milky Way um, and didn't know that there was another half over this way. Nevertheless, it's extraordinary that he even dared to try and ask these questions and that he provided answers that were anywhere close to what turns out to be the truth. Um, along the way, uh, he began discovering uh, these things called nebulae, which are basically little glowing patches of light in the Milky Way. They're very mysterious. The great comet hunter, the French comet hunter Messier, uh, had identified and numbered uh, a little over 100 of them, uh, mostly because they were getting in his way. He was trying to find comets, and there were these things that looked at first like comets until you look closer, and he didn't want to be distracted by these objects, so he, he labeled them. So when he got to them, he'd say, oh, yeah, that's number 32. That's not a comet. On to the next thing. Uh, Herschel began finding them, and because his, his uh, search technique was so thorough and because his telescopes were so good, he eventually discovered um, something like 3,000 to, to Messier's 100. And he didn't just put them in a list. He wanted to know what they were. Were they, um, were they, for example, some kind of luminous, glowing stuff 
that nobody knew, could really know what it was, but some kind of glowing patch of something? Or were they groups of stars that were so far away that they sort of merged into just a, a haze, like the Milky Way does um, at its thickest part? Uh, and he began thinking about that and theorizing about that. Um, he drew pictures of what he saw through the telescope. And he tried to understand how they related to each other. Could, could, uh, uh, could they have, for example, could, could one kind sort of, as it got older, would gravity act on it to turn it into another kind? Would things become more compressed and condensed and more regular like the ones on the bottom row? Uh, or would perhaps some of these things through gravity come together and form bigger and more irregular shapes? Uh, so he's very, very, very curious about this. Uh, early in his career, he had the idea that the nebulae were patches of stars that were very far away. Later on, he ran into some observations that convinced him that no, actually, they were probably the other. They were probably um, clouds of gas or clouds of something that were glowing. Luminous fluid, I think he called it, something like that. Um, but both, and so in both cases, he was both right and wrong because, as we now know, some of them really are collections of stars that are way beyond uh, the confines of the Milky Way. They're galaxies in their own right. Some of those million galaxies that you saw in that plot uh, and also that beautiful photograph of a spiral galaxy were some of these things taken through more modern telescopes. Others really are patches of glowing gas in the Milky Way. Um, this is one example from a modern astronomical photo. This is, this is a, a, a nebula that he could only see as a little patch of light and crudely draw um, with his hand. There was no photography in those days and certainly no color photography. <coughs> um, so it, it's not so much that his discoveries beyond Uranus were extraordinary, most of them, uh, but just that his thought processes were extremely modern and, uh, and foresaw most of, of modern astronomy. Um, this was his 40-foot telescope, the biggest one he ever built, and he, uh, he um, had to strong-arm some money out of the king to do it. Uh, the king was not happy, uh, but he gave him the money, and it turned out that this telescope didn't actually work very well. Uh, it, was, it was a little bit beyond Herschel's capability. Um, at the time, the mirror was too big and massive, and it tarnished quickly, and um, so it is pretty clear to historians that um, some of... Herschel's later astronomical discoveries, including moons of uh, the moons of uh, Uranus, some of the first moons of Uranus, and uh, new moons of Saturn, he probably made with his smaller and better telescope. But in order to appease the king uh, and make him think his money was well spent, Herschel attributed the discoveries to the 40-foot. So he would he would find something in the 20-foot telescope, and then he'd run over to the 40-foot and look around and say, "Oh yeah, I think I see it. Okay, I found it with the 40-foot." And that's what he would announce. Uh, he also um, uh, convinced the king, who by now is getting a little fed up with Herschel and his demands for money, um, to make Carolyn a professional astronomer in her own right. He needed an assistant. Uh, she was trained. She was a, an, an expert observer. She was treated um, as a colleague by some of the greatest astronomers of the day, uh, the astronomer royal uh, would write to her. Um, uh, so she was treated with enormous respect, and the king awarded her a salary of 50 pounds a year, and she thus became the first professional woman 
astronomer. She was also the first woman ever to discover a comet, because when William was off on one of his jaunts, she was doing one of, one of the sweeps of the heavens uh, as part of his observing program, noting nebulae and, and whatever she found, and uh, she found a comet, and it was a comet that nobody had ever discovered before. So, so uh, she became the first woman to discover a comet. She went on to discover seven more, which is still the record. And, um, and she was really, uh, uh, she was held in, in, in great respect. Uh, I believe that at one point, uh, the French Academy of Sciences was issuing a gold medal for achievement in science, and Carolyn was up for this medal, which in those days was just unheard of. You know, a uh, hundred years later, Marie Curie, who had already, I think, won a Nobel Prize, was refused admission to the French Academy of Sciences because we don't take women. But they were going to give this gold medal to Carolyn, and the only reason she didn't get it was that William was also in the competition, and, and he came in first. Um, nevertheless, uh, really an extraordinary woman. Um, along the way... So, so he's got this great uh, thing going, discovering nebulae and, and, and making telescopes. Uh, William was also interested in the sun. He became fascinated with the sun. Those drawings I showed you of the nebulae uh, are, are actually um, outdone, and I, I wish I had a picture, by his drawings of sunspots. He was fascinated by sunspots, and he has these exquisite drawings in his, in his, um, in his papers. And he was interested in what they were and in what the sun was. He actually believed that the sun was just an especially big planet and that it was inhabited, um, which probably raises an obvious question. Uh, why don't they all burn up? But he had an answer for that. Uh, the reason is that the, the uh, burning surface that we see is actually the top of a layer of clouds. And those clouds shield the actual surface of the sun from the heat. And it's, it's quite nice and cool down there, and the, the sun people walk around very happily and, and live nicely, and the sunspots are gaps in those clouds where we can actually see down to the surface, or we could if the blinding light of the uh, sun surrounding them didn't prevent us. So in doing his observations of the sun, Herschel uh, had to look through filters and, because it's so bright, and he would make filters by putting uh, different colors of ink into vials of water, and he happened to Notice that some of these uh, colored filters allowed more heat to reach his, his, uh, his face than others. So the color of light has something to do with heat. And everyone knew already at the, already at the time that you could use a prism to break up the sunlight that's apparently white into its colors, the, rain, the colors of the rainbow. And so he devised this experiment where he did that. He broke the sunlight up into different colors, and he put thermometers in the patches of different colored light to see what the, uh, which colors of light uh, transmitted the most heat in a precise scientific way. And um, being a very creative guy, uh, he decided to move the thermometer beyond the light. So the heat seemed to grow uh, uh, greater toward the red end of the spectrum. He moved beyond the red to where there was no light at all. And the heat went up even more. The temperature went up even more. So he concluded that there is some kind of invisible light coming from the sun uh, that we can't see, but that actually transmits heat. And, um, and he called these calorific rays. We now call these infrared rays. Uh, here's a drawing that 
shows um, on the, uh, the right um, the, um, the spectrum of visible light, where it's brightest is where the peak is highest, and then a spectrum of this, uh, this, uh, where the heat is. And you see that the, the warmest, the, the greatest heat comes beyond where there's any visible light. Um, so he had discovered infrared light, which has proven extraordinarily important in, um, well, not only in making your TV remote work, because that works by infrared light, uh, and night vision goggles, um, but also in astronomy, because it turns out that many heavenly objects emit most of their energy in the infrared. This is an example of uh, an image taken by a space telescope that sees in the infrared. And this is, uh, these, these, um, this is a nebula, but it's, um, if you looked at this in ordinary light or in, in, uh, through an ordinary telescope, it would look entirely different. The universe reveals itself in different ways when you look in infrared light. And in fact, uh, this is the um, James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be the successor to the Hubble Telescope. Uh, it's going to be launched in about 2013. And it, sees, it will see almost entirely in the infrared, because it turns out that uh, two of the most interesting phenomena in the universe, the birth of the galaxies billions and billions of years ago, and uh, the existence of planets around other stars, are most easily seen in infrared light. So, so this telescope... Uh, is using a form of light that Herschel himself discovered. It's seeing farther into uh, the universe than anyone has ever done, which is something that Herschel himself yearned to do and, and actually did do for his time. Nevertheless, uh, this is not named the William Herschel Space Telescope. It's named after a NASA bureaucrat named James Webb who uh, ran the agency in, uh, I think, the, the 60s or the 70s, which I think is kind of a, um, kind of a crime because if... Uh, if it had been named for Herschel, then people would be asking why, and many, many more people would be um, hearing this story and, and buying my book, so I would be much happier. Um, there is a Hers uh, telescope named after Herschel. It's in the Canary Islands. The mirror is, I mean, it's a very nice telescope. The mirror is uh, four meters across, which 30 years ago would have been, or 20 years ago, would have been a, a very good size mirror, not the biggest in the world, uh, now it is way down on the list because the current state of the art has telescope mirrors at, at 10, uh, 8 or 10 meters in diameter. So, so uh, his, uh, his legacy on Earth is a sort of a middle-sized telescope, and uh, uh, a satellite will actually be launched in a few weeks called the Herschel Telescope, which I think is up there looking for new planets. Is that something right? We're not sure. Well, we'll, we'll get back to you on that. Uh, but I better stop now because I've run out of time and you may have questions.